You're listening to Leading the Way, a podcast series from global advisory firm StoneTurn, where our experts speak with accomplished and approachable business leaders who share their real-world insights on a range of topics, from risk and compliance to investigations, business disputes, and more. Welcome back to Leading the Way, a podcast by StoneTurn. I'm Michelle Edwards, a partner based in the Chicago office of StoneTurn, a global advisory firm. I'm very happy to be back here again today with Amelia Drozda and Cindy Mooring. Thanks, Michelle. I am really excited about today's episode because we're going to talk about all the lessons learned, including proactive compliance and remediation. So, Cindy, you know, we've just talked through some of the lessons learned that we have, but I'm curious in your role at Walmart, um, I know you interface with a corporate monitor, so really would love to hear from the inside, right? Um, What were some of the lessons learned that you learned as an in-house stakeholder? Yeah, we definitely learned some lessons too. So the monitor uh, ship that that I oversaw uh, rose out of an environmental uh, issue at the company, which to your point, Michelle took several years to, uh, to kind of settle that whole that whole issue. And, and many of the environmental compliance uh, matters had been taken care of uh, by the time that monitor ship was actually imposed. But there was still sort of um, cultural related issues and 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 those take longer particularly in a company as as large as Walmart and so um, the monitorship for that uh, uh, particular issue ended up focusing much more on the cultural side than the environmental compliance measures it included both but again the environmental compliance uh, processes procedures and controls had largely been put into place but what we found particularly in that situation was um, that the tone that you take with the monitor uh, and the approach that a company takes with a monitor from the outset matters a lot. So in our case, we had a monitor who was a monitor for another um, large public company at the same time. And that monitorship for the other company was not going well between the company and the monitor. And it was very public and in the headlines of, you know, major newspapers, the Wall Street Journal and others. And, um, Knowing that, we wanted to to make sure, which was Walmart's nature anyway, but that we really set a different tone uh, with with our monitor. And that tone um, has to be set from the very, very top of the company uh, in terms of we're going to cooperate. And one of the lessons that we learned in terms of setting the right approach was, look, we want to learn. We want to get better. We we want you to come in and help us get better. So tell us about you know what you see and who you want to talk to, um, what meetings you would like to sit in on, and what could help you help us be better. And that spirit of cooperation, and then making sure from the very top that that spirit of cooperation and expecting it of all the employees who are interfacing with the monitor, because it's not something that a company typically has in place very often. So it's a bit of a foreign um, relationship, but it has to be defined. And it has to be defined at the outset in the right way if you want to have a positive experience where a company can take the learnings from the monitor and apply them in a way that makes the company uh, better in the end. And so that's the that's what the 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 um 
kind of approach that we took. Um, it ended well. It was a successful monitorship, um, and it ended. Um, and uh, there was a a large spirit of cooperation and collaboration, and we turned it into a learning experience, very different from the experience <laughs> the other company that's had great. with that particular monitor. So, I mean, that's that's a sign of success, right? Where uh, the company really used it as an opportunity to set the right tone and and to do the right thing. And, um, you know, that I'm recalling, you know, one of the monitorships I worked on, you know, companies can get pretty creative, right? And in, in how to leverage this as an opportunity to reset the tone, but also to get in front of large groups of employees, right? To talk about why we have a monitor and actually getting the monitor in a situation in front of a, a large group of employees to just talk about what what it means and what he or she and his team are, are going to be doing and what it is and what it isn't, right? It's not an investigation and just really um, leveraging creative ways like town halls or other things to, um, to stress those points from the beginning and set the right tone on both sides, I thought was, was really effective. And it, it puts the employees hopefully more at ease as well. Right. And um, right. they have a better sense of who this person and their team is that's coming into my right. organization. Right. And why are they here and what are they doing? And, you know, is this supposed to be an adversarial relationship or is this somebody that, you know, so what, what are we doing here? So setting that tone of collaboration and cooperation and look, we're here because we want to get better. Um, we've made some mistakes and no company's perfect, uh, but we want to get better and we want to use the monitor and the monitorship in that way to help help make us better um, makes a tremendous amount of change. But let's face it, <laughs> no company really wants a monitorship. I mean, you know, you'd, you'd rather not have that. It is some added cost and expense. Uh, but a lot of companies don't see it as a very likely scenario, which causes them to, I would say, not uh, be incentivized to invest very proactively in establishing and and testing and, and making sure monitoring, making sure that they have an effective compliance program, because they view that in and of itself as a real big investment. So Michelle, what advice would you give to companies to demonstrate to regulators that they are taking their compliance seriously? Yeah, I mean, you touched on a a topic that's near and dear to my heart because I I do spend some of my time helping companies proactively before something goes wrong, um, fix and and enhance their compliance programs or establish them from the get-go. And there are not a lot of companies, to your point, that want to invest in that. A lot of them wait until something goes wrong, right? So right. Um, it's it's tough. And so when I think about, you know, the guidance that DOJ issued, I think it was in June of 2020, it was an update to their evaluation of corporate compliance programs. Uh, to me, there was a real emphasis on, on encouraging companies to... Um, establish and monitor and test their compliance programs. But as I take a step back and I think about um, how do you most effectively do that, I always think about establishing and measuring and monitoring and reporting key metrics um, to demonstrate effectiveness over uh, time, right? right. Because right. it's it's one thing to set up and, and design policies and procedures and it's even another thing to do the testing periodically and say, yeah, they're, they're operating effectively. But if, if I'm an executive, if I'm a chief compliance officer at a large corporation, I'm going to want to have a dashboard of, of metrics that I'm presenting to my board or my audit committee 
that shows them over time, like, hey, this is working or, or hey, it's not working. We measured it. And now we're going to take steps to fix it. And this is how we're, we're going to fix our program. So, you know, this is this is something that I think could be really valuable, um, you know, to corporations. And it gets to some of the concepts that, uh, you know, Kenneth Polite at even the Compliance Week conference most recently in May was talking about, which was really, you know, considering the testing of the program um, and the concept of continuous testing and um, really thinking about quantifiable metrics. And, and from my perspective, mm-hmm. how you can leverage those to monitor the effectiveness over time, in addition to that concept of, of that core testing. And so what I've seen a lot of companies doing is, you know, they do the traditional reporting and, and establishment of metrics that they talk to some of their audit committees or boards about, um, such as, oh, this percentage of employees have been trained on the code of conduct or certain compliance policies. Right, right. You know, or, oh, this percentage of employees has confirmed compliance with our code. Um maybe sharing some statistics around timeliness of investigations in response to whistleblower allegations. These, you know, I think these are kind of old school in my, in my perspective, they're still really important, but there's an opportunity to, to really step up um, right. the, those, those metrics and what, what chief compliance officers, general counsel are keeping their eye on. And so yeah. if you take that guidance out that June, 2020 guidance, and you go through uh, what the department has embedded in that guidance, I think it could give you a lot of great hints on what to monitor. So um, I'll give you a couple examples, right, of, of things that I don't see companies monitoring um, that the department puts in, in the guidance. Um, you know, so for example, the number of transactions or deals that were stopped, modified, or more closely examined as a result of compliance concerns. Uh Mm-hmm. The number of third parties suspended, terminated, or audited for compliance issues. Um, the number of third parties uh, related to an acquisition target that have actually been reevaluated under the acquirer's standards and policies. You know, I think back to um, a project I was working on with a client, and we were we were doing an anti-bribery, anti-corruption risk assessment and program evaluation. And they had an established third-party management program where they uh, conducted due diligence on a certain level of third parties that presented risk to their organization. And I asked the chief compliance officer, so in how many cases have you turned down doing business with a third party as a result of that due diligence that that the company has done? And, you know, companies... When asked that question, I can kind of see them in two situations. They're either not going to know, right, because they are not measuring that metric and they're not tracking it. They might know generally how many companies they've conducted third-party due diligence on, but they may not be measuring that really valuable quantitative element of we've turned away a a certain amount of companies or they're going to come back and say zero, Right. Um, We haven't turned away any companies as a result of our due diligence. And without even testing the program, Cindy, to me, that says, well, that that gives me a little bit of a pain in my stomach. You know, does that program that you're doing, the due diligence that you're conducting, is it really working if you've never identified one party Mm -hmm. 
that you mm-hmm. you determined you're not going to go forward and do business with is it really effective mm-hmm. right so it doesn't mm-hmm. while testing is 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 significant and, and you can you can test the third party management due diligence process um asking basic questions and establishing these basic metrics to to show and demonstrate whether your program is is effective overall is it catching things that to me is really important and it's an area that companies can really um do some you know enhancements to to get their arms around i i complete it's measuring the prevention right measuring what you prevented which helps show that you have an effective compliance program and so not just thinking about the exceptions and where things went wrong and how many times you caught that and what you did to remediate it, but going way upstream to, we already had these controls in place and, and how much did it keep out, right? How much did it prevent by the fact that we had these controls in place is super critical. And so those are, um, well, the old school way are very concrete, very measurable. What you just described that companies aren't measuring enough is still concrete if they just start measuring it, right? But then you also have some areas that in the past, I would say, have been more difficult to measure. Things around culture. However, I don't think the regulators are accepting anymore that you can't measure culture and find a way to think creatively around and about that dynamic, which is so important. So Amelia, what are you seeing around the measuring of corporate culture and what companies should be doing and what are the expectations of regulators in that space? Yeah, absolutely. I think all three of us can agree that the the days of viewing culture as a hazy intangible are certainly over and uh, companies need to look at culture just like every other performance benchmark and metrics and and it needs to be measured. So in the current landscape, regulators aren't going to accept anecdotal answers. They want to know what an organization is doing, how it's being done, and most importantly, whether it's being whether it this is actually working. Uh, culture can't be one of those things that you, you know, it's a set of rules, you put it in in a binder, put it on a shelf, forget about it. It really needs to be lived out every day across your organization. So I think uh, a lot of companies, if they stopped and thought about it, they'd realize that there's really an abundance of ethics and compliance culture data and indicators in all of their everyday business information. Uh, as a starting point, there are many quantitative metrics that exist as indicators. Um, These can be obvious metrics, such as a number of employee breaches uh, of policies or number of employee sanctions or less explicit measures that uh, deal with, for example, like compliance training completion rates or engagement rates for compliance-related communications. So how long are employees engaging with compliance-related content on the intranet? Are they opening compliance-related emails uh, that they receive in their inboxes? You know, right. you've got to think outside the box a little bit. Are they doing their training yeah, timely, right? Exactly. Do they have to be reminded to do it um, or not? Like who measures that? You know, a lot yeah. of companies should start measuring that. Absolutely. Because if you can show your employees are doing it without having to be reminded, wow, that's awesome, right? The, the uh, compliance training one is a really interesting one. Uh, we had a, a client that was like, oh, look at all our fantastic metrics on uh, compliance completion. And unfortunately, when we scratched the surface, surface of that, we saw that that uh, employees were completing the training in one minute as opposed to the 10 minutes it was meant to take them. So even looking oh. at the amount of time it takes to, uh, you know, 
undertake the training. It, there's so much data available when you when you look in the back end. Uh, so other things that organizations should be considering is, you know, employee surveys, focus groups, exit interviews, um, and other internal and external feedback channels, you know, um, there, there's online review reviews of, of corporations from employees, Glassdoor, you know, what are people saying about the culture of the firm, uh, et cetera. So these custom measurements should be then pulled together and ideally tracked in a scorecard. Um, and so you can identify emerging trends in behavior-related metrics out of this. That's a really, really key point that you hit on there, um, scratching beneath the surface of compliance training and are they completing it more quickly than than the uh, course was designed to take? And then thinking about all of the social media channels, you know, Reddit, Glassdoor, where um, people may be talking about the company and uh, having that brought into the corporation in terms of review and monitoring and tracking all of that as well? Yeah, culture is such an important topic in this area. And Cindy, I think it would be great to hear your firsthand experience at uh, making sure ethics and compliance culture is hardwired into organizational DNA. So any lessons learned or tips you could share with us? Sure. Well, we've hit on a lot of points here. So without being repetitive, let me, let me add a, a, a few key, key features, um, here. I love the word you used, hardwired. It does need to be hardwired into an organization. Uh, operationalized is another way to think about it as well. Ethics and compliance has to be owned by the frontline, by the business managers, and it has to be evident in their actions and how they lead. And there are ways to measure um, that. And um, I'll repeat something I said a, a, a bit earlier in the podcast is that leaders and organizations and business leaders need to understand that they are responsible for the culture they create as well as the culture they fail to create. So what that really means is you can't be silent on it. And so back to this idea of being proactive, right, which we've talked about several times, there's a way to be proactive on culture and actually measure and evaluate and reward frontline leaders on their proactive efforts to build and maintain a good culture. Like companies should be tracking that. Companies should be asking business managers to bring those proactive measures that they have taken uh, to their evaluations. And um, business leaders should be required to set ethics and compliance goals, just like they set operational goals. And then those can be measured on whether or not they were actually achieved, of course, with the help of the ethics and compliance team. But the actual implementation and the leading of that needs to be something that the business managers own, too. Um, it should be tied to compensation in terms of achievement of the ethics and compliance goals through the evaluation process. It also is something that needs to be considered in the promotional processes of a company. Um, so before somebody is promoted, whereas oftentimes, you know, uh, business leaders may think about, well, did they achieve their, their operational objectives? And are they seen as um, somebody who can really move our company forward? Well, to move a company forward, you have to move it forward in the right way. 
So in terms of promotional decisions, you should consider not only did they achieve their financial objectives, but did they do that in the right way? What were they doing to promote ethics and compliance in a positive, proactive way? And are we sure that they weren't lax in there and and have any matters that they should have been held accountable for? So bringing your ethics and compliance team into that process, typically just seen as an HR process, um, to evaluate um, individuals before they are actually promoted. Um, talking about that in terms of succession planning, which is typically a process that just the business leaders um, own, but bringing ethics and compliance and what business leaders have done in that space into um, uh, discussions about succession are really important to make sure the right people are being promoted um, and up into an organization. So all of that is something that I think is super important on the culture side. Same thing on the compliance side in terms of operationalizing it, making sure that ethics and compliance or uh, compliance in particular here isn't seen as a bolt-on process, but that your ethics and compliance leaders have a seat at the table so that they understand the business processes and then can implement compliance controls that are operationalized into the business processes and procedures that either already exist or that need to be built so that it's seen as something holistic and not something that sits on the side. So there's a so much there that I think companies can do that um, they may not be thinking about in terms of helping their frontline leaders be understand that responsibility for ethics and compliance rests first and foremost with them as part of their business duties. That leads me to my next question, Michelle. What about data <laughs> and technology? The regulation regulators seem really hot on that right now. And it's another trend that I've seen change over time, right? I mean, it used to be that there wasn't a lot of ability to get at the data. Um, technology wasn't that great. Then the companies started advancing more quickly than I think the regulators did. And then you got to a point where the regulators had, had the ability to use technology in new ways too. And it upped the expectations, it seems to me, on on companies. But what are you seeing around data and expectations from regulators on how companies use it? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it is a hot topic, Cindy. And absolutely, you know, a key element of successfully fulfilling regulator expectations is the degree, the quality of data that the company can capture. And companies really struggle with this. Um, so, you know, let me... Let me go back to that DOJ guidance that was updated in June 2020. Um, that was probably one of the first times where the compliance community, I think, heard some additional emphasis on the importance of data analytics for continuous improvement and compliance programs, um, and also some heightened expectations from the government that um, organizations and compliance in particular Um, should have access to data and analytical tools to help them measure and monitor the effectiveness of their compliance programs. And so there's been a little bit of a sea change since then with companies focusing on that a little bit more and trying to figure out like, how is this possible and how do we, how do we best accomplish this? Um, But it's a pretty daunting task for companies that haven't done that in the past. Um, To your point about, you know, the regulators are starting to, to really leverage data and data analytical tools in their investigations. That's a big deal. Um, you know, various regulators, including DOJ, including the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services or the Office of the Inspector General, have been more vocal about their own use of, of data analytics and data analytic tools to identify and investigate potential wrongdoing. So it's really an area that would be 
uh, important for for companies to start thinking about if they haven't already. Um, start thinking about how to incorporate more sophisticated data analytics and tools into their own compliance and auditing programs um, and really get ahead of the, the regulators identifying the red flags, really thinking about, you know, your key risks, right? And, and what are some, some ways that the, the compliance and the legal department and the internal audit department can start getting access to data that's going to help them more efficiently and effectively monitor for those risks and those red flags, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't know about you all, but this has been a fascinating conversation. I think there've been lots of like nuggets that have been <laughs> dropped along the way. Um, but I'm left with some lingering questions actually that I think we're going to be covering or you all are going to be covering in some upcoming episodes. Um, and that is things like how do monitors actually get picked? So, Michelle, do you want to give a little little uh, preview into what are some of the upcoming topics in the Stone Turn uh, uh, podcasts? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that is a topic that is kind of known as a, as a black box, right? Um, there's been some controversy about monitor selection, um, and there's been some some ambiguity of of how it happens. Um, the, and the process certainly has been critiqued for a lack of transparency, but also diversity. And so, um, you know, we plan to, on one of our upcoming podcasts, dive into this a little bit more. Um, we're going to also be inviting some female monitors uh, to give their own take on the subject. Um, and I think have some really engaging discussion to, to talk about some cases as well, where recently there's actually been some actions taken by judges and others that do have a role in, in the appointment or at least in the approval of monitors to really start thinking a little bit more deeply about diversity in the monitor selection process. So we're excited about that. We're excited to have uh, some really fantastic women that have been the in the role of, of a corporate compliance monitor and give us their take on that. Oh, that sounds great. That is what I'm definitely going to tune into because I do agree that has been a bit of a, a black box in the past. Um, so in closing, I'll just say on behalf of myself and Michelle and Amelia, thank you so much for tuning in to this particular podcast episode on monitorships. And you can find a lot more insights on Stone Turn's websites at uh, stoneturn.com and also on LinkedIn where Stone Turn has a strong presence. So make sure you look out for the next episode. Connect with Stone Turn on LinkedIn and that'll be a way that you can continue this conversation. But for now, we're going to say so long until the next episode. Thank you. Thank you all for tuning in. Thank you for listening to today's Leading the Way episode. For more helpful insights and practical advice, turn to us at stoneturn.com.